As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals, number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. Welcome so to Season 5 of the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This episode, we have Sierra Couturier and Tim Kennedy. They are experts in the industry who I had the honor to know in the past here. This episode is for you if you want to gain insights on the topic of collaboration between the Aquaculture Industry Alliance and education. So if you're on the brink of having to make wise decisions you're experiencing in your business or existing projects at the moment, you will learn a lot from this panel interview. So listen in and I hope you enjoy this episode. Last week, we had Mark Smith talk to us about the blue economy and seaweed. For a one-on-one interview of our panelists today, please refer to Season 2, Episode 3 for Tim Kennedy and Season 2, Episode 15 for Sierra Couturier. Welcome to the show, Sierra and Tim. Thank you, Lord. It's good to be here. Thank you. Well, I am so delighted that you both took the time to speak again with me today. I really like reconnecting again with previous guests in the podcast. So thank you again for being here. So I just want to kick this interview by asking either one of you can start. What is one thing that you learned in the past decade in the aquaculture industry? Well, I haven't been in the aquaculture sector for an entire decade. So I'm going to turn it over to Sear first. Thanks for kicking the ball down the road there. (laughs) I've been in the, in the sector for a long time, as you can tell from my gray hair, but I'm still very excited about it. So what have I learned in the last decade about the aquaculture sector in Canada? Well, to be perfectly honest, it's been stagnant for over two decades. There are a lot of regulatory and political barriers to growing this uh, wonderful, sustainable food producing activity that could actually contribute to Indigenous reconciliation and all of the other social issues that we may have here in Canada. So that's what I've learned. Not to be a Debbie Downer, but I do agree with you <laughs> in terms of the regulatory and political barriers. But maybe Tim, since you're a newcomer, yeah. well, maybe not, maybe you just, can- Just over that. just over a half decade. Thanks, Lord. So yeah, no, I've, I've been in this role as president of Kaya for about five and a half years. I think that the thing that I've learned most is just how amazing the people are in the sector. So I've worked in a lot of different sectors in Canada, mainly in the sort of the resources and environmental communities. But I would say I just find people extremely well-intentioned, very earthy in the sense of, or watery, I guess you could also say, (laughs) just excellent people who want to produce amazing food, want to look after their animals extremely well. 
and really want to have aquaculture be an incredible benefit for Canada. And I think that the frustrations that we often feel that Sear touched on in terms of the stagnancy of the sector in terms of volume growth is that that frustration, right? It's that sometimes that tension between, again, what's possible and everybody knows what's possible and even desirable for the world, right? Very much in terms of amazing product and sustainable product and actually some of the blocks that we're experiencing in Canada in particular. So amazing people with a great potential and a sector with amazing potential. But as Sears said, some of those blocks can be very frustrating at times. And uh, I'll just add to that, uh, Tim, as you mentioned, it's not just the potential, but I think everybody in the sector and the Canadian aquaculture sector of all types, right, are, are really excited about the potential. And they just want to move it ahead for their communities, wherever they may be in the country. And so there is frustration, as you said. But the other thing that I think I learned being an older person is that, as Tim mentioned, there is lots of collaboration actually among all of the sectors, the suppliers, the producers of anything from seaweed, phytoplankton, all the way up to, you know, the fin fish side. So there's great collaboration. We see this on the on the Kaya board, obviously, but we see it across the country. And so it's about the aquaculture sector in Canada, it's not a federation, so it's not voted on by province and there's no political aspects. Everybody's in the same boat. They want to move this industry forward for the benefit of Canadians, all Canadians, and even First Nations. So what I've learned, in addition to that, is that we're running into issues with attracting youth to work in the, in the industry, right? I mean, some of us have been around for a long time, and a lot of people in, in aquaculture in Canada have been in around for a long time. But there's a perennial gap in employment on farms, in hatcheries, even in processing. And that's a real roadblock as well. So I guess the whole education piece of what opportunities for Canadians, young Canadians, older Canadians, whatever, in employment is, is one of the things that we must do more, the sector must do more of. And so that's what I've learned in the last 10 years. And just for the sake of our audience, Kaya means Canada Aquaculture Industry Alliance, which leads me to my next question. And I don't know about this. Does the United States have a counterpart that's equal to Kaya? Do you guys know? There's a couple of national associations in the U.S., the U.S. Aquaculture Association, but that's run by the U.S. government, mostly with state membership and some industry folks. There's Global Seafood Alliance, which is sort of GAA, Global Aquaculture Alliance, recombined. NFI, National Fisheries Institute, which works on the processing and marketing side. And then, Tim, there must be at least one other. Yeah, those are the big ones this year. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the industry ones, which actually were part of the Pacific Shellfish Growers Association, which is in the States and the other species. Yeah. So there are regional associations like that that are industry associations in the U.S., you know, the catfish farmers, all those sorts of things. And uh, like you mentioned, the Pacific Shellfish Growers, Pacific Seaweed Growers, uh, all of this kind of stuff. So Kaya also has a membership of the regional associations in Canada. Is part of the alliance because it's Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance. We're That's all aligned. True. Because I think we're members of the BC Shellfish Growers Association as well. 
My next question then, because we started with some of the obstacles and barriers, why hasn't Canada advanced in agriculture production for the past 20 years? Any thoughts on this other than you already mentioned political and regulatory barriers? I think the best way of thinking about that is looking at at another country or even a couple of countries, right? So that that have have done really well. So of course, we'll take the example of Norway, no surprise, right? But Norway in the 1970s, they were going through significant crises in a lot of their smaller communities around around the crash of fishing stocks. And they have so many fishing communities that they said, how do we address this? Right. And, and so they said, well, let's look at fish farming. And so there'd been some successes early on in that. And so they I think what happened that was the government then said, let's really develop this. And then, of course, they had some successes. They had some setbacks, but they had more successes than setbacks. And they said, well, let's throw the weight of the country behind this. This is something I think we could do really, really well. And ever since that time, of course, they have grown, they have set growth targets. They know and they recognize that they can, they can do this and they can do it really well. And they've set their will to it as a country, as a nation, and, and really succeeded, right? So, this is the problem for Canada is that both, I think, our regionalism, our different governmental structures, right? Provinces, feds, municipal governments, First Nations. It's definitely much more complex in Canada. But the one, I would say, the one major thing missing is that we have not had a very strong government voice, especially at the national level, to say, this is something Canada should do and should do it extremely well. And let's throw our weight behind this sector across the country so that we can be the best in the world. So that obviously is something that Kaya, as the National Association, is very focused on, is Government of Canada working with the provinces, working with First Nations. We can and should do this, and we should do it extremely well. And in many cases, we are doing it really well. I don't want to say we're not, but I, I just think we, we need that will, that sort of united will to move this sector forward. And, you know, there have been flashes of brilliance at times. I'll just remind people that just a few years ago, you know, there were recommendations to the finance minister from Dominic Barton and a group of eminent economists that aquaculture is one of the major opportunities for Canada to grow. Where is that report? It's kind of disappeared, honestly. <laughs> so, so again, there are flashes of brilliance, but then the government will I think largely dominated because of critic voices, can't kind of move forward. And that's, and that's a major challenge for Canada. I would just paraphrase a little bit what Tim said from having been around for a few years. Really what we're missing is a champion, as, as Tim said, right? Somebody in Canada to champion this sector as part of the blue economy. We know full well that Canada signed on to the blue economy initiatives around the world. They did so in Kenya. A few years ago, at an ocean summit, Minister Wilson. So they said they want to be part of the blue economy. You had Mark Smith talk about this last week on your podcast. So I think, you know, we just need to put our facts in place and find that champion from Canada, so to speak, because also Tim didn't mention, but we used to be one of the top 10 world seafood suppliers, okay, from farmed and wild sources. That was in the 1980s. And we ruined a lot of our natural stocks. I don't, you know, I don't want to lay blame on we or they or anybody else, but those are the realities under our current structure and governance structure in the country. 
And at that time, in the 80s and 90s, you know, at the time, that time, Canada did see an opportunity to grow their seafood sector via aquaculture. Canada was in support of this before the Commissioner for Aquaculture Development. They hired an aquaculturist from Ontario to go and work in the Brian Tobin's office when he was fisheries minister in 1995, came up with a white blue paper. I can't remember the name of it, but say, yeah, we got to do this. And then slowly moved into fisheries department as aquaculture management saying, yes, we support it again, either under liberal or conservative or NDP governments, whatever was in the flavor of the day in Canadian. And then it's sort of just stalled since then. And so we do need a champion and it should be a national champion. I mean, all of our trading partners have their champions, so why don't we? Yeah, I do agree with both of you. It's fascinating, though, because when you mentioned about Norway, I actually just saw an article today from Seafood Source talking about Sir Mac backing out from their investments because Norway is actually doing a tax hike rate of 40%. So I was just wondering if they went too fast which is the very opposite of what we were talking about in Canada and talking about blue economy. I was in the Ocean Super Cluster event three weeks ago, and that was one of the questions. The blue economy was a branding that they were moving forward and it just kind of died down. So this looking for a champion is really top and foremost, I think, if there's anything that we have to do to move the industry forward. Because I also remember there was talks about Aquaculture Act and that talk has been in the last 30 years. So there was nobody who's moving it forward, which leads me to my next question. Tell us about UNDRIP and its role in sustainable aquaculture in Canada and elsewhere. To be honest with you, I don't know what UNDRIP is. Recently, I've just been finding some acronyms that I found fascinating. I was in another call the other day and somebody talked to me about BRICS. I don't know if you guys know what BRIC is, B-R-I-C, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, and China in terms of being compared to NATO. So tell us about UNDRIP. So the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People has been around for a while. I think it's been around, in fact, for maybe 15 years or somewhere around there. So this is a United Nations statement, global statement around, again, the rights of Indigenous people, and I think has been picked up rightly in Canada by Indigenous people in regards to reconciliation in Canada. So, and, and all the work that's gone on in the last, you know, 25, 30 years since the Royal Commission in Canada. And and so it certainly gave an additional voice to a lot of the Indigenous communities in Canada around recognizing their rights and rights to self-determination. Yeah. So I would just say in our sector, Lourdes, I'm really, really excited by what I see in terms of the engagement, the collaboration, the interest from so many Indigenous communities across Canada in, in aquaculture development they are just such a major community of, of interest and in developing this sector in a, in a kind of fresh, fresh way. So there's a lot going on. I think that's almost like an entirely other podcast, but I'll just touch on a, on a couple things. So Kaya, the National Association, has had for the last three years a board committee called the Indigenous Partners Network, the IPN. So we have about 15 nations, mainly from British Columbia at the moment, who are engaged in discussions with the sector, with the industry about aquaculture development. You're probably very familiar that a coalition, Finfish Coalition of First Nations, kind of rose up in the last 18 months to two years 
in response to the federal government's decision on Discovery Islands, just to really assert their right to self-determination, their right to make the decision to salmon farm, you know, should they believe it, it's the best for their community. And so that's really what they're arguing. And then we know that the Assembly of First Nations in Canada did some research in 2019 that said over 250 First Nations communities in some capacity are involved in aquaculture development. Massive, right? And and we're just seeing, Sierra is seeing this as well, like more and more communities that want to participate in aquaculture in some form. So there's a huge benefit and opportunity here for the sector, for Canada, for everything that's going on to kind of mend, I think, and mend those relationships and also to have new economic opportunity for a lot of these communities. Yeah, and I just wanted to point out, Tim, in fact, we actually have a federal legislation that was passed in 2021 that recognizes UNDRIP as law because Canada was a signatory under the United Nations and several other countries have done the same. So I think Canada was just playing catch up to that. And we can mention New Zealand, Australia, and some of the other countries around the world that are involved in aquaculture. And they've come to the same conclusion, right? That the First Nations or Indigenous peoples in in their countries must conform to this UNDRIP resolution in respect to aquaculture. Now, it's a little bit of a hot topic right now in Chile because, <laughs> because the Chilean government and the current government is talking about giving back all of the lands to the indigenous people of Chile. And that may not go well for some of the shellfish and finfish and seaweed producers if that goes ahead. But mm. that's a topic for another day. Can I just touch on one other thing? And, and that is because you brought you brought it up, right? And so Norway, of course, as I mentioned, has been really successful. And I'll just give you a couple of stats. I may have said this last year as well, but Norway has 10 times the production that Canada has, around 10 times the production. It has about a third of the biophysical capacity, just in terms of kind of the coastal capacity for aquaculture. So it just shows you how much Canada can do. Norway, in both their last government that was sort of right of center and their new government that is left of center, have both agreed that by 2050, they want to grow the value of their current sector five times, right? So massive, this kind of sense of goal setting. Now, this kind of tax proposal, you know, the problem with it is that in a sense, you're killing the golden goose, right? So you're already seeing that in terms of a lot of companies who are backing off in investments. One thing in Canada that we have to remember is, which is different than Norway in many ways, but in British Columbia in particular, there are local agreements with First Nations that in a sense are a tax. They're a local tax. And some of those agreements are very lucrative, very expensive. So that's something that is not often thought about and considered in Canada when we think about federal royalties or provincial royalties and the tax that's charged to the companies. So there are additional costs of business in Canada that other countries would not have. I totally agree. It's interesting that we're talking about this because I remember one of my mentors once said before, I don't really mind paying high taxes as long as I'm making a lot of revenues. Mm. And, and going back to business, it's fascinating too, because I was also in the Global Investor Forum in New York last May. And there, there were a lot of talks in terms of not only you know seafood, but alternative protein and the like. And one of the people I connected with is a venture capitalist. And I can't even begin to talk about them putting money into our operations because it's so small. Mm. And I don't mind being small, but it's even more on what my future would look like, right? I have to mm -hmm. give, give them a really good story 
uh, what this my industry would look like 10 years from now. So I started mm-hmm. our interview with what was it like a decade ago? And so forward looking and hopefully 10 years, from, even this digital decade that we're on right now, hopefully we have a better story. So that's kind of where I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else that you guys like to share in terms of other than, you know, having a sh- champion, more engagement, collaboration in, in the industry? What would be a magic pill? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking the matrix here, blue pill and red pill. What would be, do you think, another magic pill to move the industry faster, I guess, is the word. I don't like to prognosticate because there's always politics involved. But I think if we can find a champion for economic development, the social and economic development from the Canadian perspective, all of the provinces, I think, are and territories would be on board for that. So on my wish list would be that we would find that champion. And I think the industry in Canada is perfectly fine with either having the federal and the provincial governments and territorial governments share the regulatory burden and the management of that. And really, that's the rule of the regulators anyway, is is to manage things on behalf of their population. So as long as they get along and co-share the management, I think, and then you have the champion, wherever that fits in the in the federal system, I think you'll find those champions in the provincial systems as well. So we just have to get along, right? And the other issue is where do I see it going in the future? Well, there are going to be some constraints. Labor is one of them. Finding the federal champion is the second one or the first one. And then having a cogent regulatory frame so that not every jurisdiction is at odds with one another and is getting along, right? But the industry is getting along. So why wouldn't the Canadians see that, right? And the benefits are far away the, the negatives, of course. Sustainable food production, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, all of the things that we're talking about around the clock nowadays uh, on a global scale and in Canada. So I think it's a a win-win for everybody. Lords, where there's a will, there's a way, right? The old adage. And, And I will say that if you think about the whole kind of system of aquaculture, let's, you know, you start at the operational side, right? So operators need supports to be competitive that the rest of the farming community in Canada has had access to for many, many years, decades and decades. We don't have access to a lot of those. I'm going to be explicit right now. So we talk about a champion generally. It is actually time for DFO to become a science and regulatory specialist and leave, even though we don't get much promotional or sector development support from DFO, it's time to leave that to another department. And that should be the Department of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. So let's be really specific. It's time to change that. I think the critics have been asking for that because they want our pure regulatory department. We understand that. We think that the regulator needs to sort of be above question in, in, in many ways. And so let's separate that. So we need to do a good job at the ground level with our operations, right? We need to tell that story better. We're starting to do that through Kaya and through the regional associations where we're doing more of that. Then there is the champion, as Sear has alluded to, but that's Agriculture Canada with DFO as our separate regulator. And then we do need the will. We need the vision and the plan from Agriculture Canada on behalf of the government of Canada to grow this sector. And to see it as really the amazing both economic and sustainable food opportunity it is. 
And so that's kind of the system of things that we really need. And a lot of other things fall in place. And I'll give you one example, right? Massive, massive impacts on our PEI shellfish farmers. The biggest produce production of shellfish in Canada is in PEI. They have just been hit through Hurricane Fiona with over $50 million in impacts. They don't have a system to support them like the land farmers in terms of basic insurance and sharing of risk. And so it's time to change that. That would change with Agriculture Canada. So that's kind of the system that I think we need in Canada. Well, hooray to that. All right. (laughs) So my biggest takeaway from our conversation today was when you guys were talking about having a united will, I guess, when we were talking about regions, government and First Nations, and obviously suppliers and industry partners need to have this one voice. That has always been what we found so far that has been very effective is a group of people work together to have this one voice. So this would be like a general leverage, I guess, in any industry. So how can our audience get in touch with you guys? I think the audience, you know, if they don't know Tim, (laughs) they just can go to aquaculture.ca and they'll get Tim's uh, contact information. And they'll also get mine as well if they ask. So so it's not an issue. I'm an academic researcher and an advocate for sustainable seafood farming. So you just put me under Google Circuiture and you'll find how to get in touch with me. I like seeing your LinkedIn post as well. So you guys can see both of these guys on LinkedIn. Correct. So please remember you build a home in the Philippines via B1G1.com when you listen to the podcast. Thank you to all our listeners and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Sierra. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thanks, Lourdes. Thanks, Sierra. Take Bye. care, folks. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues, and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website, www.sustainableaquaculture.ca slash podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture.